Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from John uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, it's page number 940. John 3, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Good morning. My friends, the case for Christ is strong. And when I say the case for Christ, I mean the case that we make in support of the good confession that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of the living God. And when we say this, we do not simply mean that Jesus is the Son of God like any human being made in God's likeness is the Son of God. It includes that, of course. But we're saying that Jesus is the one-of-a-kind person, the only one of his kind in all of existence that is simultaneously both human, fully man, and fully God. And the case that we make from the Bible, that we make through the power of the Holy Spirit, to one another, to strengthen and encourage each other in our faith, and this case that we make to the world to try to save our friends and our enemies alike is extremely strong, so strong that the enemies of the cross have been trying to refute it, have been trying to shame it, to destroy it, to bring it to an end in every single generation now for nearly 2,000 years, and every single generation sees them fail freshly in the same ways that they failed in the previous generations. The truth remains powerful, and it cannot be overcome by the opponents of it. Jesus is in Christ, is in fact the Son of God. He is human, He is King, He is Savior, He is Lord, He is High Priest, He is God. We are dealing in this series now with four questions, and we begin to work with the third now, which will be a two- or three-part lesson, depending upon how it develops. But this question is, how do we deal with the objections of unbelievers? 
How do we deal with the objections that come from folks in the world that don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And there are three kinds of, of objections that we're going to talk about in this part of the series. And the first kind of objection is to say something like what you see on the screen. Well, there's no such thing. When somebody says there's no such thing as, as the Son of God, then probably this challenger, this objector, means one of two things. They might mean what you see here. The, the, the founders of the Christian religion made Jesus up. He's just a fictional character. And if you are familiar with this um, barely used phenomenon in our time called the Internet, that I know nobody pays any attention to whatsoever, but if you're familiar with the Internet, you know that there are some folks out there, opponents of the cause of Christ, who say that Jesus never actually existed. He wasn't really a historical figure at all. Just the, the folks there in Jerusalem and the ancient world needed somebody uh, to give them a basis for power and to get people to give them money and etc. And so they just made up this story about Jesus and they started telling it and people started believing it and so on. All right. So that, that's, one of the, that's one of the claims that some people make when they're saying that there's no such thing as the Son of God. They're saying he's just a fictional character that people made up. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I want us to think about uh, the Roman historian Tacitus. The Roman historian Tacitus, well, I'm sorry, I missed, I missed uh, Aldous Huxley there, the bottom of that screen. I, I wanted to simply read this little quote taken from Aldous Huxley, who was himself a historian and who was himself solidly not a believer in Jesus. Now, it's always the case, that the, it's always the truth that the best case for Christ is going to be made by believers in Christ. That's a fact. But it's important sometimes to take in uh, the testimony of some of the enemies of the cross and just recognize what they were able, uh, using good reasoning processes to discern. Aldous Huxley, Huxley wrote, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And of course, that comes from the 20th century, uh, but it comes from the mind of a man who didn't believe in Jesus, but he didn't bother to make the silly claim that there was no such man. He was able, using the powers of his intelligent mind, to recognize quite clearly that none of this that has, been, that has happened, none of the stories that have been told, the Bible and success, the whole phenomena of B.C. versus A.D., I could go on and on and on. He was smart enough to recognize that that didn't just happen by folks making up a fairy tale. Fairy tales can be powerful, but there are no fairy tales that can come close to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No made-up story will have the kind of effect on the world that a living person like Jesus will have on the world. But uh, let's get back to the ancient world and look at the Roman historian Tacitus. And Tacitus writes this sometime in the late 60s or maybe the 70s AD. He writes, but not all the relief that could come from man, but not all the relief that could come from man, not all the bounties that the prince could bestow, nor all the atonements which could be presented to the gods availed to relieve Nero from the infamy of being believed to have ordered the conflagration, the fire of Rome. And so, in other words, you may know historically about the fire that destroyed a big part of Rome. And the theory is that Nero started this fire because he wanted some of that land to expand some government building projects. All right, well, of course, he wanted that to be secret, but it turned out that Nero's the one 
that did it, the, the Kaiser, the Caesar himself. And uh, so, well, he makes all kinds of atonements, all kinds of gifts he gives to people, all kinds of offerings to the so-called gods in order to try to convince people it wasn't his fault and that didn't work. That's what Tacitus, the historian, is saying. Okay, and This is shortly after Nero's demise that he writes this. And so he considers, he continues, hence to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with the guilt and punished Christians who were hated for their enormities, that is because they didn't worship the Roman gods. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. Now you can tell that Tacitus is not a friend of Jesus. And he is certainly not a friend of the church in the mid-first century. But he is a historian. And he's a historian widely respected. And if you will study Tacitus, you will understand that Tacitus researched his history very thoroughly. And he did not make statements that were not backed up by facts. And so if Tacitus wrote this, he's writing what he knows to be history. Are you hearing me? He's writing what he knows to be history. He knows it to be history that Crestus, the Latinized form of the word Christ, was executed by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea during the reign of Tiberius, just as the Bible said. And so I just want to briefly share, because I, I'm going to be blunt with you, brothers and sisters, and blunt with you, friends, and I'm going to be blunt with people out there on the internet that may tune in and listen to this lesson. I find the argument that Jesus was not a historical figure to be so silly, so, worth, so unworthy of discussion that we're going to settle it here and move on. If I'm trying to reach somebody with the gospel of Christ, and they spend much time telling me, I'm just sure Jesus wasn't a real person, I'm moving on. I'm moving on to somebody else that I am more likely to be able to reach. Not because I don't want to reach that soul, but because it is such a foolish thing to say when the evidence and support of the actual historical life of Jesus is so overwhelming. And I've only given you two pieces of a wide breadth of evidence that I could give you there. So let's move on to what people usually mean. When they say there's no such thing as, as, as the Son of God, what they're saying is there's no such thing as invisible spiritual beings, places, and other supernatural stuff. That's what they're saying. In other words, they're saying, I don't believe in anything that I can't see with my eyes, that I can't feel with my hands, that I can't smell with my nose, hear with my ears, and taste with my tongue. In other, other words, if I can't experience it with the five senses, then it's not real. And these people would then say, naturally, Jesus can't really be the Son of God. Now, because it entertains me, I'm purposely playing on the word supernatural and natural because I want you to understand that this kind of criticism comes from an anti-supernatural bias. And we call the mindset that has this bias naturalism. And so naturally, they don't believe in Jesus. That's my funny preacher joke for me, which nobody else in the world would find funny, but I do. All right? So naturally, they don't believe in Jesus. Naturalists are people that have decided that the only thing that exists is this material universe and there can be nothing beyond it or outside it. And of course, well, 
Uh, that goes against the common experience of all of humanity, of every race, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every language, of every period of history since the dawn of time. It goes against the whole weight of the human experience of life, uh, but that's not only the case. It goes against uh, the evidence that science points to. You will never put God in a test tube and experiment home on Him in a laboratory. If that's what you've got to do in order to believe in God, well, then I'm sorry. God is bigger than that. And what can I say other than that God is bigger than that? And you're going to have to learn what we actually mean when we say the word God. We mean something that is not subject to human experimentation. We're talking about a being that is too big for us to fully understand. Because if we could fully understand God, he would be less than a human. Because a human can only fully understand things that are less than him or herself. Are you listening? The Bible even tells us that we can't even fully understand ourselves. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? That's the word of prophecy. And so if we fully understand something, it is less complex even than a human being. Are you hearing? We're not talking about a human being. We're certainly not talking about something less than a human being. We're talking about God. You don't put God in a laboratory and experiment on God. But that does not mean that the evidence for the existence of God, when rational people seek that evidence, is not overwhelming. It is. Let me say a couple of things here briefly. I'd like to talk about this more, but we've got to move on for the sake of time. Number one, it is impossible to know that there is no God. No one can know that there is no God. And, and I say that not just because there, in fact, is a God, <laughs> Because there is, which you know this, but I'm saying that there is no possible way that any human being living in this world could ever find enough evidence to make a case to prove that there is no God. It's not possible simply because of the nature of who and what God is. And so the best, that, even the, the hardest anti-theistic atheist that you will ever find out there in the world that says, I know there is no God, is being, a, is being foolish. He or she does not know that there is no God. He or she does not believe that there is a God. And the emotion that they feel in support of their contention, they accept as proof. Listen, doing the very thing that they accuse Christians of doing and criticize people of, of faith of any type of doing. In essence, making their belief out to be ironclad fact. Now, we know that the Bible teaches that faith is not simply, biblically speaking, faith is not simply believing in something that we cannot prove. Faith is knowing something based upon evidence other than sight. That's the only way, that the, the simplest way to explain what faith is with con, in contrast with what it is not. It, it, our world says faith is believing in something you cannot prove. The Bible says faith is believing in what the credible testimony of prophecy, of the miracles of Christ, of the inspired scriptures, what they teach us is true. We weigh those arguments, we test that testimony, and we come to the realization through the rational process, using our minds that God has given us, we come to the, to the conclusion that the case the Bible makes is valid that it is sound, and that it is true. That's where faith comes from. It comes from using our minds, not taking them out and throwing them away. It comes from weighing the case, 
testing the evidence, not simply from shrugging, shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, I like this particular belief, and so I'm going to choose to believe it even though I can't prove it. That's what the world says Christians are doing. That's not what true Christians are doing. But it is the very thing that the critics of the church are doing. I hope that point is clear. I can't say any more about it. Number two, it is entirely possible to know there is a God. I'm going to share briefly some ways that we go through the rational process of, of coming to that conclusion. A rational investigation of nature will inevitably lead the investigator to Jesus. So what criticism am I making of these naturalists? I'm saying that they're not actually letting the process that they put their faith in be followed all the way through to its conclusion. And this is, this, this is just absolutely par for the course in, uh, in the world of humankind. It, it can be true with us too, brothers and sisters, and we need to be careful about this and not be hypocritical about this. But human beings are lazy. Now, I'm not saying everybody in this room is lazy. I'm not saying every human being is lazy. I'm not denying the fact that there are some humans that are the absolute opposite of and antithesis of lazy. And I really do love motivated and hardworking people. I love them. I love that. But as a race, you know it is true, we're lazy. We don't like to work any more than we have to, any harder than we have to, any longer than we have to, for any reason that we don't have to. And we will, we will just like water, we, we go downhill, we use the path of least resistance if we possibly can as a general rule. What this means is that people will be intellectually um, studious. They will put their brains to work for as long as they think that they have to to get to a place where they can live a comfortable life. And then they tend to kind of stop. And that's a fact. And that's what most people do. And so there are folks out there that think of themselves as great intellectuals that have uh, the letters P and H and D behind their name and, and other kinds of letter combinations that come behind people's names that have taken their studies to that level and they get to a certain place where they're happy and comfortable with the worldview that their education has given them and with the life that it is affording them and they stop searching. And I'm saying to you this, brothers and sisters, it's not merely by the case that the Bible makes that we're able to say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but it is about taking every field of study that there is. Biology, geology, psychology, zoology, etc. You put any of the logies out there, and if you will simply study that, that, that logy, whatever it is, to its ultimate conclusion, it will lead you to a place that opens the door for you to consider the case for Christ. And if you don't believe that what I'm saying is true, you set up an appointment with me, and we will sit down and go through this in detail, which, it, which we are thoroughly capable of being able to do when we don't have a time limit. A rational investigation of nature will inevitably lead the investigator to Jesus. And this is why that no man or woman who has ever lived has got any excuse not to believe in God and ultimately in Jesus Christ. I've heard some atheists over the years being questioned about their lack of belief some that have already died and left this life, and you can see videos of them being questioned in their later years, and I've heard more than one say in different words that, you know, being asked, uh, after all of this time, are you still, uh, do you still claim not to believe in God? And, and they'll say something like, yes, I do not believe in God. And, and they'll say, well, what if when you die, you find out you've been wrong? And I, I've heard some of these atheists say, well, I've 
well, I'll have to say, God, I've got a bone to pick with you. As if somehow their unbelief is God's fault or his failure, that he hadn't supplied enough information or enough evidence for them to put their, their brains around and think about, and nothing could be farther from the truth. The Bible says in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because, note this, what can be known about God is plain to them. Now, this context, specifically here in the middle of Romans chapter 1, is talking primarily about the whole of the ancient Gentile world, which at the time that Paul wrote these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit was bowing down to idols of wood and of stone and gold and silver, and they were worshiping the created rather than the Creator. And Paul said they do not have an excuse being raised in a pagan culture does not excuse paganism. And considering that we're talking about making the case for Christ, being raised in a Muslim culture does not excuse not coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Being raised up in a communist regime in which, in which atheism is the law of the land, that does not excuse one from the process of thinking and weighing the evidence that nature shares and coming to belief in Jesus Christ. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. Now I shudder to think about those atheists standing before the throne of Jesus one day, choking on the words that they always swore they would say to God if they saw him and realizing that they no longer have breath to save them. The God of the Bible is God. Here's a real simplified version of building the thought process through the analyzation of the analysis of evidence in nature, just as Romans 1, 18 through 20 teaches us God expects people to do, uh, this itself could be a whole series, but this is the simplified version. Listen, something cannot come from nothing, and that is a fact. It is not debatable. It's not questionable. It is simply truth. The material universe has not always existed, and therefore it is a fact. It's not a question. It's not wishful thinking. It's a fairy tale. It's a fact that something that is not of this universe pre-existed the universe. And that, by very definition, means that there is such a thing as supernatural reality. In other words, there is such a thing as realities that are absolutely just as real as this material universe, but that simply cannot be seen in this material universe. And, and one can know that... I'm just... Oh, sorry. Let me just kind of... Simmer down here for a minute because I'm getting heated up, man, because this is, these are fighting words, okay? We're waging war right now, all right, with the enemies of the cross. And so we've got to be careful, though, that we preach the truth in love. So let me adjust my mentality here for a minute. I'm just trying to get across the point of how simple, how simple, how simple it is to reason from just basic observation of nature and realize that there is a God. 
And this is why, not because God is being mean, but this is why the psalmist says that the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. Because you cannot live in this world and disbelieve without blinding yourself to the overwhelming evidence that is around you at every turn. And so something supernatural had to have preexisted the universe. There has to be something that has always existed, what we would call the uncaused cause. Something has to be eternal in itself. And it is nothing that is in this material universe. Science has proven that. Therefore, science even proves that there is supernatural existence that preceded the beginning of this world. Does that make sense? That's the point that I'm trying to get across. Secondly, we could say there is no design without a designer. We absolutely know that. I've asked this question to people that I've studied with so many times, I can't even count. But I just ask, how many times must a tornado blow through a lumber yard in order for it to accidentally frame a house? And this kind of argument exposes the silliness of the stats that unbelievers will sometimes uh, give us about well, what, is, uh, what, what were the odds that life would come from non-life in this universe based upon macroevolutionary processes without a God? And they'll give you a number like 466, you know, sextillion, 700, anyway, put lots and lots and lots of zeros behind the number and then say to one. And what, they'll, what they're, they're getting the point across is that the odds against life coming from non-life without a supernatural cause were just, it was astronomically not likely. But considering that time has been infinite, it, it, that was bound to happen at least once over the eons of time. And do you know what that is? That is belief in something that cannot be proven. Now let that sink in. And it is a belief not only in something that cannot be proven, but in something that is in itself absolutely anti-scientific. Anti-scientific. If you see a house, somebody built it. You can't make any odds on how many times a tornado would have to blow through a junkyard to build a running automobile because it's never happened. The one has never occurred. And so the odds against are still mounting up with zero situations in which order has come out of chaos without a designer. Now you take one single human being, Caleb Bryan, not here on the leadership retreat, I assume I don't see him, I mean on the, the marriage retreat. Caleb Bryant, great mechanic, put him in a junkyard, give him a certain amount of time, I'm sure he could make a car run. I probably couldn't. I can change tires and change oil and do a couple of things, but if the engine just completely ain't working, I can kick it, you know, and that's about the best. But the point is, order never arises from chaos without an orderer. Cars don't just happen. Houses don't just happen. And listen, my friend, if you've got your eyes open, you already know. If you're 10 years old, you already know 
that your human body is more complex than the most complex hybrid automobile that has yet been constructed by mankind. And this great artificial intelligence that, that uh, computer science is experimenting right now, none of those AIs can even come close to the processes that take place in these CPUs up in our noggins, not even for a second. The complexity of a human being is so great that to say that it happened without a designer, that this order happened without an order, that this order arose from chaos accidentally is, oh man, i got to just tone it down again because it's foolish. It's really blind. It is really deeply blind and foolish. I'm not trying to be mean. I just want to make sure ah, that, this, that this thought gets out. And I'm already running out of time. Man, preaching is hard work, y'all. <laughs> morality does not arise from, morali- from non-morality. Morality always belongs to personality. Are you listening? Therefore, there's always been a moral personality. Now, you can take these arguments that folks have been using for centuries because they're ironclad. You can't defeat these arguments. They're just observations of of nature based upon reason, and they prove the case. Nature bears witness to the existence of a creator who must be all-knowing. Listen, at least as far as anything we're able to comprehend, the creator has got to be all-knowing. He's got to know more than the combined knowledge of everything that there is to know in the universe, seeing as he created it all. So at least as far as we're concerned, this creator God is all-knowing beyond That's something we can discern from nature. This is a Romans 1, 18 through 20 kind of piece of knowledge. All right? And and so he must be all-knowing, and he must be all-powerful. Again, at least from the standpoint of all of the combined sources of energy and power that is able to be wielded by using those sources of energy in all of this universe, God has got to at least be one degree more powerful than all the power in the universe, seeing as and how He invented all the power in the universe. It had to be derived from him. I'm just telling you what we can discern from nature. We're not even getting to the Bible yet. We're just talking about nature. This is what you can learn from nature. All right, so nature teaches us things about about God. And that, that we can discern that this God is perfectly morally and ethically good. One of the great points that C.S. Lewis uh, brought up in his book, Mere Christianity, which you should read if you hadn't, and that's my opinion. that that was part of the process of him leaving an atheistic worldview behind and moving in the direction toward Jesus was his realization that his great claim against God was, oh, there's Caleb, here you are, you were hiding. Good to see you, brother. All right, you could do it, right? He's not answering. Anyway, I know he could, okay? But anyway, I got distracted there. ADD here, back to my point. What was I saying? Okay, right. Uh, and, and so, thinking about uh, the, the, uh, this creator God, he's morally and ethically good. How do I know? Because one of the things that C.S. Lewis brings out that was his major claim against a God was all of the injustice and evil in the world. He's looking around and seeing all this evil everywhere. And this is one of the continual attacks that come from people that do not believe in God or in Jesus. They say, well, if God is all-powerful, you say God is all-powerful, and God is all-knowing, and God is all-good, then why is there so much evil in the world? Now, the, the short answer to that is read the first three chapters of the Bible. God, God didn't leave. He didn't 
cause us to have to read through very much. If you're just starting your investigation into the case for Christ in the Bible, he didn't leave the answer to those questions way deep in the middle, buried in the prophets somewhere. First three chapters will tell you why there's so much evil in the world. But one of the things that, thank God, C.S. Lewis began to think is, is what, hold on, where did I get this idea that things should be good? Where did I get this idea that the world should be just? It doesn't come from anything in nature. It's got to come from that supernatural stuff. Every, listen, every human being, even those that psychologists would, would uh, say are psychopaths, every human being operates on a moral compass and has a belief in good and evil, tries to justify their own thoughts, words, and deeds so that they can say that, that deep down inside they are good people. C.S. Lewis worded it this way, every single one of us is aware of a perfect standard of morality that none of us perfectly keeps. And that testifies to the nature of God. He made us in His likeness. He is morally and ethically perfect. We're not. Here's the point I'm making, brothers and sisters. This is the point that you must get today because I'm going to run out of time to develop everything else as much as I wanted to. Some of it I'm going to save for next week, but please listen. This you've got to get. An all-knowing God and an all-powerful God and an all-good God is capable of creating creatures that can recognize that he exists, that have that capability, and that can't recognize that he exists, that don't have that capability. God choosing to create human beings and placing in our hearts this thirst for the supernatural, this desire to be spiritual, which in its very essence is na in nature is non-natural, non-physical, non-materialistic. I'm not saying that material stuff is not spiritual. I'm saying the search for spiritual things is about seeking what we cannot see, but that we know is real. Love being the first signpost or marker along the road of that journey. Love is real. And it is not based in the flowers, it's not based in the trees, it's not based in the birds, it's not based in the bees. It's not based in anything in this material universe. It's something that transcends it, and that points us along this destination. And so, in other words, if God is all-knowing, and God is all-powerful, and He creates human beings, and He puts within us this ability to look around and tell that, wow, this has been designed by some awesome being that is so smart, so powerful. Man, look, it's obvious that this stuff was designed. He's given us the ability to discern him. If he doesn't make himself findable, that's cruel. But the testimony within us that God is good says that he would not do that. And so what I'm telling you is, before you even open up the Bible with somebody, you can lead them through an investigation of nature to the point that they realize that there is a God an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God that wants to be found by them. That's the case that God makes through nature. And the Bible picks up right there and enables us to go the distance. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, And you, Solomon, my son, David says, Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. There's David's promise to Solomon, his son. 
2 Chronicles 15, 1 and 2. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Odin, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. The words of uh, 2 Chronicles 15, 14 and 15. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. Jesus, in the New Testament, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find. Knock. And it will be open to you. Here's the promise of the Lord. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Which of one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Brothers and sisters, that's who God is. And he's real. And he's made you able to recognize that he's real. And he has put within your heart, as long as you don't shut it down and resist it, he has put within your heart the deep desire to seek him and to know him. And he hasn't done that to toy with you in cruelty. He's done it because he wants you to find him. He wants you to love him as he loves you. The God of the Bible is God. A God who wants his children to seek and find him, who is, not, who is good and not cruel, and who has the power to do anything imaginable, can certainly reveal himself to them in a variety of ways. And as I've tried to at least just give you the, the basic introduction to, by comparing the various religious teachings, first of all, thinking about nature itself, but then when we're, we know that God wants to be sought, by comparing the various religious teachings, the truth seeker can come to know the truth and reject error. Now, very quickly, I have put a comparison and contrast chart on your screen that compares and contrasts the four kinds, broad categories of kinds of religion that we find in the world today. We have polytheism, that is the belief in many gods, many deities. This worldview gives a point of view that, that makes good and, and evil out to be equal. You know, the whole Star Wars thing. We, we know Star Wars, right? The light side and the dark side. It, 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 that's fantasy, but it's based in polytheism, a polytheistic or what we might call a pagan or heathen worldview. It, it's the idea that, well, there are good gods and there are evil gods. And some people adopt this worldview even within Christendom. Well, there's God, he's the good God, and the devil, he's the evil God. And they more or less think that the two are equal, but that's not the case. No one is equal to God, but God. Amen. The devil's not equal to God. None of the angels are equal to God. We're certainly not equal to God. The plants and animals and the dirt and stuff, that's not equal to God. Only God is God, and God is good. Therefore, good and evil are not equal. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Good is winning, brothers and sisters. I know that lots of evil is still happening all around us, but good has already won and continues to win. And on the last day, evil will be utterly and eternally defeated. 
We'll live in a glorious resurrection world in which there will no longer be evil. God will have destroyed it. So they believe, of course, order from chaos without intelligence. If you read any of the pagan mythologies, the gods like spring out of the water or something with no good reason. Okay? Because these are not based. This point of view, this worldview, this religious idea is not consistent with what the rational mind can observe in nature. That's the point I'm making. God starts his process in nature. He gives us the skill to think. He'll open up our eyes to reason if we will examine nature. And if we will do so, we can realize that polytheism doesn't work. I could read the rest of that. Eastern uh, theology, Eastern religion, which is so popular in America today, especially among the elites out in Hollywood and wherever. But it, it is either polytheistic or atheistic. You can be an atheist and be a, be a Buddhist. Buddhism is so much less of a religion than it is a philosophy of how to live this life. Now, it has lots of supernatural elements to it. I'm not saying it doesn't. But uh, according to Eastern theology, evil is suffering. It denies uh, a creator or any first cause. Buddha gave no belief in any kind of creator or first cause at all. There's no accounting for the origin of order, according to this worldview. It is man-centered, and salvation is internal. It is a human effort to attain enlightenment. Polytheism, salvation is external. It is the human effort to achieve glory. That's the aim of polytheism. Eastern religion, the aim is an internal salvation, a human effort to attain enlightenment. That's its ultimate goal. Then there is singular monotheism. By this I mean Jews and Muslims. Good and evil are incompatible. That's good. They're right about that. Order came from the mind of the Creator. Good. They're right about that. High value of human life. They're right about that. Salvation equals external. A human effort to keep law, either the law of Moses or Sharia law in the case of Islam. They're wrong about that. Finally, there is triune monotheism, and Christianity is its only example. Good and evil are incompatible. That's right. Order comes from the ordered mind of the Creator. True. High value of humanity. Yes. Salvation is holistic. By that I mean it is both internal and external. It begins on the inside. And it spreads until it changes everything on the outside. And salvation is a divine gift that leads to transformation. I want you to notice that there is a stark contrast between the three and the one. Remember on Sesame Street when you were kids, those of us of this generation, one of these things is not like the others, one of these th things is just not the same, etc. Which of these things, you know, can you tell me? I can't remember the whole line, but I remember watching diligently, it's that one, it's that one. All right, just training people to use basic observation skills. Human effort, human effort, human effort, God's effort. Which one's different? Brothers and sisters, we compare these different religious beliefs. We realize that God has revealed himself. God did not reveal himself through whoever it was that thought of all these pagan deities. And the worldview that they came up with was absolutely man-originated and man-centered. God did not reveal himself through Hinduism or from the Buddha or any of these Eastern religions that frankly aren't searching for God at all. Therefore, they're not, by very definition, they are not and cannot be revelations of the God that, that created this, that we're seeking, that we have this desire in our hearts to seek. Uh, God did found the Jewish religion, but he didn't leave it there. The problem is Judaism without Christ is unfinished. 
It is a type that has no antitype, a symbol that has no fulfillment. And so it is left without the key to it all that makes it all finished and makes sense. And, and that's the problem we're trying to get Jews to realize so that they can believe in their Messiah because he was theirs first and be saved. Muslims, some have said the Islam, Islam was the greatest of the Christian heresy. That's a complex thing to say. But Islam depends upon Judaism and Christianity to exist it cannot exist without them. The Quran trusts that its readers already know many of the stories in the Bible. And therefore, the Bible is its judge. Are you hearing me? Therefore, the Bible is the Quran's judge. And it proves Islam to be false. The Bible tells us long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in his last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I am going to save this quote for next week because it's too important for me to skip past it, but it just shows again the difference of Christianity from the world religions. But I just want to end with this point, brothers and sisters, and just to ask you to let this sink in. This is just paving the road for what we'll talk about next week, Lord willing. But there can be no objection to the fact Jesus' way of life and teachings exalt good and inspire growth in its perfect pursuit while exposing evil and teaching us how to resist it effectively. There can be no objection to the fact that Jesus' way of life provides a realistic pathway for forgiveness, redemption, and healing unparalleled by anything else in the world. And what I mean by that is you go over in your mind these past 2,000 years and you ask, what philosophy, what religion, what teaching, what mindset, what teacher has transformed more killers into healers, more drunkards into sober men and women, more abusers into servants, more perverts and people overcome with lust into folks that live lives of chastity and purity. And you're going to find that it has a singular answer, that question. It's the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing in the world compares to it. That's our answer to this first objection to the Messiahship of Christ. More next week. This morning, appreciate your patience with me. If you this morning have not yet named the name of Christ and made the good confession, uh, it's, this is your opportunity to do that today. And this morning, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you know that you've got sins in your life, there's this place in your heart where you're seeking, you want to be found by God, you want to find Him. It begins by saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And based upon making that good confession, we'll baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins, and you could begin your walk with Him. If you're subject to the invitation, the front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.